All right, guys, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We are experts on Melchizedek now, aren't we? No, no. Yeah, we are. We're, we're experts. All right, we talked about how Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, let, let's review just a little bit before we jump into today's lesson. We've been talking a lot about how Jesus is our high priest, okay? What does he do as our high priest? When we call Jesus that, what does that what's included in that role as our high priest? Anyone have any ideas? Michael. He sacrifices for us? Yeah, and ultimately he sacrificed himself, right? He was the ultimate sacrifice for us. What else? What else does he do as our high priest? Why is that a comforting thought? Why is that a helpful thought to know that he is our high priest? Purifying the high priest. Anything else? Nelson? Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he uh, cleared the way for us. We've talked about that. Um, we also talked about how he sympathizes with us as our great high priest. He, is, he uh, was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And so he's our sympathizer, he's our mediator, he's our sacrifice, all of these things. Um, and we've been talking a lot about Jesus as our high priest. Last week we talked about how he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's important because it's contrasting to the priesthood of Levi, which was based on the law and based on continual sacrifices. But the Melchizedek isn't based off that. It's, it's a, he's a king and a priest. He isn't a Levite because of his genealogy. Um, and uh, and he's not, it's not based on the law. It's based on the promise of God. And so we looked at all that le- last week. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, look at what it says. He sums it all up. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. It's always helpful when the Bible includes that word. When you're trying, what is this? What's the whole point of what he's trying to say? Right? He gives us the point right here. He says, now the point of everything we just said is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on, in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And we're going to be looking a little bit more about Jesus as our high priest, and we're going to see how he is better than any other priesthood because of a couple things. And Hebrews chapter 8 is going to talk about a new and a better way, a new and a better way that Jesus brings there's two ways and two things in, in this chapter that points to Jesus being better. And we're going to look through these in chapter 8. First of all, we learn that Jesus is better because of where he is serving. I just read verse 1. It says, He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Jesus is better than any priesthood, any law, because of where he is serving. And where is he serving? It says that he is sitting at the Father's right hand. We've probably heard that about Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, but this is a particularly interesting thing to say about a high priest. This is a strange thing to say about someone who is a priest. Why is that a strange thing? It's actually shocking for a priest to be described as sitting down. You know why that is? Because priests never sat. Priests never sat. In fact, there were no chairs in the holy place. 
And there was a reason for that. They were continually working. They were continually sacrificing and presenting offerings. Listen, listen to Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So here we see this contrast. Jesus is our great high priest, but every earthly high priest is standing daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices day in and day out, which can never take away sins. And we have a high priest, Jesus, who sat down. Why could Jesus sit down? Someone tell me, why could Jesus sit down? He is Jesus. He is Jesus. Yes. Yeah, good, absolutely. So he offered himself with a once and for all sacrifice. So he doesn't have to continually offer sacrifices for our sins. He made one sacrifice, it's done, and he sat down. Jesus is better because of where he is serving. He could sit. In Hebrews 7, verse 27, we read, we read that he has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. His sacrifice is completely sufficient for you. You have a high priest who sacrificed himself once for all. Your sin is paid for. Your sin is sacrificed for. There's nothing else left to do. And so Jesus was able to sit down. But this passage tells us there's another reason why Jesus is better, because of where he's serving. It says he's serving in a heavenly sanctuary. Look in verse 2. It says, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And he makes a big deal in these next couple of verses uh, that Jesus could only be a high priest if he's serving in heaven. And he contrasts the earthly tabernacle and tent with where Jesus is serving now in heaven. Look in verse 4. For if he, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a, high, a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Verse 5. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. It's saying that when, if Jesus were a high priest on this earth, he actually would not be qualified to be a priest. Why? He's not from the tribe of Levi, and he'd have to offer sacrifices according to the law. So if he were here on earth, he wouldn't qualify as a priest. He is a priest in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary. But there's a much bigger reason why Jesus would not be able to serve as a high priest on earth. It's because the priesthood and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all these things that we read about in the Old Testament... They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It says later in verse 4, When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And verse 2 talks about the contrast between the earthly tabernacle set up by man and the true tent that the Lord has set up. And here's the problem that these Hebrew listeners were, were in. They were looking at the temple and they're looking at the sacrifices and they're looking at the priesthood as the ultimate display of God's character and plan. This was it. This was, this was the best. This was the substance. This is the, this is the ultimate thing. This was heaven on earth. And this is what the writer here to the, book, to the Hebrews is trying to get them to see why would don't don't fixate on this temple and on these sacrifices and on this Levitical priesthood because these things are just a copy, they're just a shadow of the ultimate things. 
They weren't meant to point to the, they, they were meant, these things were meant to point to the ultimate reality. These things weren't reality itself. Jesus said in John 5.39, you search the scriptures, you're talking to the Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. In this passage, right, the, the Pharisees and scribes are looking to the, to the Old Testament, specifically to, to the sacrifices in the Old Covenant and, and, and the law, because they thought that in, in those things themselves, that was a source of eternal life. But Jesus says, no, the scriptures actually point to me. I am the substance that these things that you're reading about in the Old Testament is pointing to. Look in Colossians 2, verse 16 through 17. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Because these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So these Jewish readers, they, their tendency was to fixate on the shadow rather than fixate on the substance. They loved the temple and the law and the Sabbath and the sacrifices and the priesthood. But they failed to recognize that Jesus is the one that all these things were pointing to. It's like, it's like if, you know, if you, it's looking at the shadow of a magnificent sculpture and just thinking the shadow is so awesome and, and fixating on the shadow instead of fixating on the sculpture that is casting that shadow. This is what the Jews were doing. And we can do the exact same thing in our lives. We can fixate on the shadow instead of the substance. And, and whether that's physical things or, or even a church building or even our own works. We can fixate on the works that we do here rather than the work that Christ has done in heaven. Jesus says that, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, that, that even our good works point to Christ. But yet we can fixate on the shadow. We can fixate on the thing that is meant to point to Jesus, but rather point to those things itself. But in reality, the ultimate display is Jesus Christ. Verse 1 tells us the point of everything we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. He is a high priest who finished his task and sat down. And he is a high priest who is serving in heaven, the one that every law and sacrifice and priesthood pointed to. So how do we apply this to our lives? What, what, how does this make a difference for us today as, as Christians? Well, if He's our high priest, so look to him, right? He's, he is all that you need. Don't fixate on the shadow that the things that are meant to point to Jesus and make those what you're all about. See those things as what they're meant to be seen as a pointer to Christ. He did the work. He made the sacrifice, and he sat down. And this is really, should be for the Jewish readers, a, a reason to rejoice, a reason to celebrate. Wow, man, I don't have to depend on the sacrificial system. I don't have to depend on this priesthood on earth. I don't have to depend on, on, on seeking to obey the law. These were all meant to simply point to Jesus. And, if, and by looking to Jesus, I'm actually honoring these things that were meant to point to Jesus. So Jesus is better because of where he's serving. But then Hebrews 8 tells us that Jesus is better because of what he is doing. Look in verse 6 of chapter 8. It says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. 
as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And it's here that he starts to contrast something called the old covenant and the new covenant. And Jesus is the mediator for this new and better covenant that's enacted on better promises. And he starts to contrast this old covenant with the new covenant. What's a covenant? Can someone tell me kind of what, it, what does it mean? What is a covenant? A promise, okay. What, what else could, it, could be involved in that? Yeah. Yeah, there's often rules involved in that. There's a, it's, it's like an agreement, right? Oftentimes, and usually when it's a, it's called a bilateral covenant, that just basically means it's a two-way covenant, right? So you follow these things and, and then I will do this, right? And that's specifically the case for this old covenant. It's like an agreement, right? Shaking hands on, on something. It's a covenant. He contrasts this old covenant and the new covenant. What is the old covenant that he's talking about? Anyone know? What's the old covenant? Between God and good, good. And so this is specifically talking about Israel being called to follow the law. And in return, God would protect and bless them in the land he promised them. So this started when, after Israel left Egypt, right? They're on the Exodus and, and they come into a covenant when, when God gives them the law. And they come to this agreement. And God says, if you follow this law, I will protect you. And then I'll bless you with physical blessings in this new land. I'll give you riches. I'll give you wealth. I'll give you produce. I'll give you long life. All these things. If you follow my law, I will bless you. That's the old covenant. It's this agreement. The sacrificial system was put in place to take care of breaches to that covenant. Right. So if, if an Israelite offended the word of God, broke the word of God, God set up the sacrificial system to cover that. That, okay, you broke the, your side of the covenant, but that doesn't mean you're done for. You, you go through the sacrificial system, and that, that brings you back in, into, into alignment with the covenant agreement. Now, what happened ultimately with this covenant? Did it last? It didn't. It didn't. Ultimately, Israel broke this covenant. And this is and what, and, and what resulted was they, they refused to keep the law and they even refused to worship God and they turned to worship idols. And God promised them in the covenant that if you were to do that and you don't return to me, I will exile you. I will, I will send you away from the promised land and you will have to be, live in exile under the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and, and other pagan nations. You'll be spread out. So this is what ultimately happened to the Old Testament law. Israel broke this covenant. But there were readers here that were still fixated on the Old Covenant. They were fixated on the law. They were fixated on this agreement and as, as the be-all, end-all, as the ultimate display of God's revelation to man. And Jesus enters and, 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 and introduces this new covenant that is better than the old. And, and at first blush, you may think, as an Old Testament Jew, right, or as a New Testament Jew, well, that sounds really disrespectful. God created this old covenant. Why would he do away with it? Does that mean that, that it was a bad covenant? Does that mean it's wrong? In fact, it says he finds fault with this old covenant. So did God mess up? 
Did God create a lousy covenant? Is that what he means by finding fault with his covenant? What do you think it means? What does it mean that he finds fault with the old covenant? If it doesn't mean that he thinks the covenant is bad, what does that mean, do you think? Outdated. Outdated. I heard Adam say, it doesn't work anymore. anymore. And then you're going to say something, Michael. He means the people weren't compatible with it anymore. Okay. I I think ultimately he's saying it's, it's at fault in the sense that it was never meant to accomplish what the people were trying to make it accomplish. So people turn to this old covenant, turn to the law, as a means for salvation, right? as a means for eternal life. And he's saying, it was never meant to do that. It was never meant to give that. And so if that's how you're looking at it, you're going to find fault with it. It's not going to work because it was never designed to work that way. How does Hebrews 8 describe this covenant? If you skip down to verse 13, he calls it obsolete, growing old, ready to vanish away. And Jesus is described as this mediator of a better covenant. Well, what's the new covenant? Okay, what's the new covenant? What new covenant does Jesus introduce God, or in this passage, he points back to the book of Jeremiah to establish what this covenant is and where it came from. Why does he go back to the book of Jeremiah? I think it's to prove to these Jewish readers, by using an Old Testament book, this was always the plan. In fact, God introduces this new covenant way before Jesus and prophesies about it. Meaning, Jesus never meant, God never meant for this Old Testament, Old Covenant to be the, the final Version to be the, the be all end all way back in Jeremiah it says, Listen, there's a new covenant coming. And in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, all the way down to the end of the chapter, he's just quoting Jeremiah 31. If you were to skip to Jeremiah 31, you'd find the exact same words that you find here. These Jews were clinging to the old covenant, clinging to the sacrifices, clinging to the law, clinging to the priesthood, but it was never meant to be the final solution. So let's read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, this quotation of Jeremiah, and discover what is this new covenant. The first thing we learn about this new covenant that Jesus introduces that's far better is it's unconditional. The old covenant was conditional. It was this agreement, right? You do this, I'll do this. Look in, look in Hebrews 8, verse 8 and 9. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So he describes the old covenant, says this old covenant agreement between Israel and God was conditional. And ultimately, while God was faithful to his side of the agreement, Israel broke the covenant. And as a result, God showed no concern for them. Point of all that to say, this new covenant is not like that old covenant. It's not conditional like this old covenant. It's unconditional. This is God simply promising and saying, it doesn't matter what you do, I am making this promise and it's all on me. And you read these verses, and there's so many first-person pronouns. I, me, 
Because it's God who is doing this. This is an unconditional new covenant. We also find out that this new covenant is internal. Internal. What do we mean by that? Look in verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The Old Covenant was based on this external law written on the tablets of stone on Mount Sinai. God delivered the law, wrote it on stone tablets. And it was this external law that the nation of Israel were called to follow and obey as a nation. That was the Old Covenant. This New Covenant that Jesus is bringing in isn't an external one, it's an internal one, where Jesus promises, I will write my laws on your hearts. I will transform you from the inside out. To where ultimately, there's a personal knowledge of Jesus. Even to the extent that you don't have to tell each one your neighbor, know the Lord, because they all know me. From the least to the greatest. There's this internal transformation. This, the law is written on the heart, not on tablets of stone. And then, verse 12 says that this new covenant is final. Verse 12 Again, this is quoting from Jeremiah. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's no more need for constant sacrifices. This is an ultimate and complete and total forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the one, he says, who has obtained a ministry... That's way more excellent than the old ministry because the covenant that he's mediating is better than the old covenant because it's enacted on better promises. And so he contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. And the old covenant was conditional. It was external. And it was cyclical. It kept on repeating over and over again. You follow God, you sin, you you make a sacrifice. You follow God, you sin, you make a sacrifice. And that just would go on and on and on and on. And then this new covenant comes in through Jesus Christ because he's our great high priest. And he pays the penalty for us once and for all on the cross. And he becomes our high priest, our mediator, who is constantly interceding for us. And he introduces this covenant that is unconditional. It's internal. It's transformative. And it's final. It's a once for all payment. And this is why we can say that following Jesus is a new and better way. And just like the temple and the priesthood were all shadows that were meant to point to Jesus Christ... The Old Covenant was meant to point to Jesus Christ. It was meant to be a shadow. The sacrifices were meant to point to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. The priesthood was meant to point to the ultimate priest. The laws that we couldn't measure up to were meant to point to the perfect one who would fulfill the law for us. The Old Covenant was meant to point to Jesus, but the Jews were just focusing on the Old Covenant. They were saying, this is it. This is God's ultimate plan. And he introduces this new covenant and says, no, way back in Jeremiah, God promises a new and better way. It was never meant to offer salvation. But you know what? People tend to look at the shadow and treat it like the real thing. 
And instead of looking to Jesus, people viewed the Old Covenant as a way of salvation. And in a similar way, I think people today fashion their own religions, their own way of living, after the character of the Old Covenant, which was never meant to be a way of salvation. It's a cheap imitation. This New Covenant proves its superiority, not just over the Old Covenant, but over any man-made religion that people come up with. People elevate the shadow that's meant to point to Christ and make it the way of life. But Jesus' new covenant is far better. Just like the old covenant, every man-made religion is always conditional. It's always conditional. I think that's how we're kind of just wired being born into the world. That if I need to do these things to, to make God happy with me, I, it's, this, it's this two-way street. It's conditional. That's how every religion in all the world is fashioned. Do these things to earn God's favor and enter into heaven. That is, that is man-made religion. That is conditional. Man-made religion is always external. It's always, this is, this is how you should act. This is how you should do. And it's always cyclical. Right? That means cycles. You know, you think of Roman Catholicism where, where you... You, you seek to follow God, and then you sin, and so what do you do? You go to the priest, you go to confession, and you say Hail Marys, and you say Our Fathers, all these, all these rote prayers, and then you go out, and you live your life, and you try to follow God, and then you sin, oh, i got to go back to confession. And it's this cycle time and time again. Why? Because man-made religion is conditional, it's external, and it's cyclical. It just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. And that was the characteristic of the Old Covenant, but here's the big difference. God designed that Old Covenant. And the very reason He designed it was to say, this is meant to point to something. You're supposed to see in this Old Covenant that this is not the ultimate solution. It's meant to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But yet, man just settles for the shadow and creates religions that are conditional and external and cyclical. And Jesus comes in as a great high priest and offers this new covenant that is unconditional. It's internal. It starts in our hearts and produces good works from the inside out. It produces a new heart, a heart that loves and knows God. And Jesus introduces this new covenant that is based on a final sacrifice, that your sins are forgiven once for all, that we don't have to punish ourselves, we don't have to make up for our sins, we don't have to try to do a bunch of good works to make up for the bad that we've done. Jesus says, no, that's the, that's, that's the man-made way of thinking, that's the shadow, that is meant to point to my ultimate sacrifice, that I paid it once for all. And this contrast between old and the new covenant isn't meant to say that good works and holiness are somehow legalistic. It's saying that the old way wasn't effective in producing that, that that true holiness. Jesus provides a better way to produce holiness in our lives. By rescuing us with his love, by internalizing his word through his spirit in our hearts, and transforming us and, and making us new. Jesus provides a new and a better way because he is our great high priest. 
And right at the beginning of chapter 8, he says, this is the point of everything we've been saying. We've been talking about Melchizedek. We've been talking about the role of the high priest and all this stuff. This is the point. We have such a high priest. Jesus is greater than the priests. Jesus is greater than the old covenant. And everything that it points to, it points to Christ. This is God's plan from the beginning of the world. And when you zoom out and you see his divine plan from creation to the start of the nation of Israel and the formation of the old covenant and the Mosaic law and how that ultimately points to Jesus Christ who brings in this new covenant and fulfills the law and fulfills the covenant and offers forgiveness from sins and transformation and ultimately glorification as we're reunited with Christ in heaven for all eternity. It's an incredible picture. And Jesus introduces this new covenant that we can live our lives by. Jesus is greater than anything. Greater than anything this world has to offer. Greater than any man-made religion. Jesus offers new life. The last verse of Hebrews 8, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And in chapter 9, he's going to expound on the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how this is enacted. We're going to see the sacrifice of Christ. We're going to see how Jesus perfects and cleanses those who come to him. And it's an incredible truth of God's incredible grace through Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you offer us new life through this New Covenant. Lord, we thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for the law. We thank you for the sacrifices. We thank you for the temple and the priesthood and how each one of those things pointed to you. You came in as our great high priest, as our ultimate sacrifice, as the keeper of the law so that we could be united in you. That we could accept your sacrifice for our sins. That we could accept your righteousness for our own sin. Lord, we thank you for this incredible plan. Lord, if there's, if there's anyone here that is still living in an old covenant mindset, seeking to earn God's favor, seeking to, um, seeking to perform for the sake of perfection. Lord, if there's someone here seeking to, to outweigh their, their good deeds, outweigh their bad deeds with their good deeds, if there's anyone who's trying to create their own punishment for their sin, Lord, I pray that you would point them to your Son, the ultimate Savior, the ultimate High Priest, who introduces this new covenant that's unconditional and internal and final, and help them come to a faith in you and you alone, where they can lay down their attempts at good works, and accept your righteousness for them so that you can enter into their lives, transform them from the inside out, and create someone who is a workmanship of God created for good works. Lord, we thank you that you have rescued us and given us salvation. Help our lives to be impacted by what you've done for us. In your son's name I pray. Amen.